idea for all this really came from a dream? Yes, it did. Good evening and welcome to Nox Mente. Tonight's guest is Sarath the Mage. Sarath is a Scottish cultist, YouTuber, visual artist, poet, chaosolator, and blues harp master. Steve of Sarath the Mage, his, name, his real name is Steve. Steve of the Sarath of Mage Experiment makes a virtue out of being an, exper an expert in nothing. He describes himself as an enthusiastic dilettante, ex-addict, psychedelic advocate, and experimental magician. Sarath, Steve, welcome to the show. Welcome. Greetings, and thanks for inviting me. That's great to have I you. I will always love your greetings. That's my catchphrase, greetings. <laughs> and we need your yeah we need the um the tuning bowl the singing bowl <laughs> oh yeah my, my singing bowl and now i've added uh half an hour of chaos later and uh screaming harp music it's going I know, down fabulously I'm... well oh, i have oh, no idea you're so good i wonder what would happen if we mixed the chaos later with the um disruption engine Ooh. Well, I'm I'm very into my cut-ups and stuff, so you know that goes right in that there. Breaks right? down the control system. <laughs> That's right, rebel, rebel. <laughs> it's a great honor. Finally, we do get the great Sarah, as, or Stevie, as as Kate Keats calls you. Uh, yeah. On my Nox friends Mente. call me Stevie usually. I yeah, love it's Stevie, an absolute so honor to be. Honor to be here. Um, I hope I can um, think of enough things to say in two hours because I only do an hour on my own show and that's pretty exhausting. So if I kind of fade out towards the end, I might just have to uh, tap dance or something for the last half hour. You're in good hands, trust me. Yeah. And yeah. also, people should know Sarah is in Scotland and it's late. It's like two o'clock there, right? Yes, it is uh, four minutes past two in the morning. And it's, of course, in the midweek, and he did not get a, much of a nap, I imagine. You had DM me saying you were taking a nap, but then you were you were constantly yeah. replying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was too excited to sleep. You know, so. I promise and, uh, we'll make this two hours go by fast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to say, you know, this is through so many, uh, like so many other people that, we circumambulate around and all that you know i met you through cw chanters well over there i think <laughs> yeah is that where it's common is that well where? yes yeah i think, I think so i met yeah that's kind of been the the hub of the community and that's where kind of my whole youtube thing started really Yes, I rem I was there in the beginning, the very, very beginning. You had like five followers and I was one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm up to a massive 800 and odd now. You know what's great about that is that's real. You know, people, I didn't know this, that you can pay to have subscribers and pay to have oh, likes yeah. and all that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. you know, the whole thing about my channel, the, the whole reason I started it was because I kind of liked CW's realness. And I thought, wow, you know, I found his um, just observing somebody's life. It was almost like performance art, you know. And I thought, 
why can't I do that? You know, I, it's not like I'm an expert in anything. I'm not particularly good at anything, but it's just fun. And I just wanted to, wanted to um, invite people around to my house instead of always being in other people's. That's where it started. But that has actually given me the impetus to kind of learn more. And you know, by trying to make the channel more interesting, I've had to make myself a bit more interesting, get back into the magic. Yes. Um, so it's it's kind of um, propelling me along quite nicely. It's been a journey. I remember when you were at 125, and you're like, I'm just going to keep it here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> what a silly idea that was. Oh, you, uh, it's been a journey with you for sure. And so honest, you, you came on immediately and talked about your, you know, heroin addiction, your drug addictions, and also your wonderful blog uh and all that so it was just so easy to want to tune in for me at least because you're bringing in the magic you're bringing the honesty you have grit because you have been through the uh the addiction and life experiences and stuff so this this gives gives you a depth of uh presence that at least always that's the kind of stuff i look forward to hear so very much and then, of course, we've done our videos together. Yes, we have. <laughs> uh, we've done some high it? art. Uh, Shoot, yes, maybe behind my back there. We should do another one. Yes. And, uh, of course, there's uh, the Saturday Sideshow, which we recently did, which was uh, wonderful. Fantastic. I loved it. We kept, we kept it with the, the art and the rock and roll going. And I look forward to definitely more of those with the art and the magic and the rock and roll. Yeah, that's that's what it's all about for me. Those those three sort of um, combining art, music, poetry, uh, magic, all that stuff, and just chuck it all into a big messy blob with a yes. few beers and yes. a few cigarettes. <laughs> with the wonderful Keats, you know, at the helm. Yeah, like he was at the helm there, and well, I certainly and... couldn't have. I couldn't have. Uh, I have no editing skills. I'm not very good technically, so I just press play and uh, go, you know. But Keats <laughs> was there to hold everything together for me. So, yeah. Uh, yeah so, it was very gonzo of us. Also, sh shout yeah. out to Keats, who's uh, in the audience tonight. Oh, oh excellent. excellent. I can't yes. see chat, so uh, hi, everyone. We all love Keats. Everyone says hi. Keats, <laughs> Keats very Rogers. talented. Awesome. I love his music. Oh yeah, everything. Played. He's so intelligent. That's the thing. Like yes, the I really bottom. enjoyed the, uh, the. I knew I was coming on. And I listened to his documentary, uh, and I thought, "How am I gonna? How am I gonna top that? It's not. <laughs> it's not to top anyone. We're all individuals here. There's no competition at all. No, none. But with that said, let's dive right in. Are you ready, Stevie? I am ready. All right, let's go. So let's go back. Let's go way back to the earliest memories you have in this life. And if you could describe them for us, what the world was like, even if it's just the earliest memory or if it's just the period in which yeah. that memory swims and lives. Well, that's a beautifully evocative question. I actually was brought up in a, a very wonderful time for my family. Um, we had, uh, funnily enough, I was very close to my mum's side of the family. Her um, 
father and mother, my grandpa and grandman, grandfather, the Wilson side. I mean, I look like a Wilson. I've got the blue eyes and the bump in the nose. My dad had dark hair and dark eyes, and uh, and we live right next door. Um, my mum and dad had bought a house right next to her mum and dad. Um, so it was like we had a, almost like a compound, um, huge back garden. I just remember it being like summer all the time. Obviously, I'm, I'm got rose-tinted spectacles. And yeah, we were, my grandfather had a quite a successful business at that point. My dad was rising in the Merchant Navy at that time. And then um, a few years later, it would all fall apart. My granddad uh, was a gambler. My dad was an alcoholic. So things unraveled very quickly after that. But my earliest memories are just of joy, running about the garden, lots of love, um, absolutely happy memories there. Were you about three when it all kind of changed? How old were you? Um, it didn't really start to change until my little brother was born, so I was a bit older, maybe six, seven, and um, my mum always said that, you know, my, my grandma and grandma, granny and granda made such a huge fuss of me because there was still quite a lot of money, so I got masses of toys and stuff, and by the time he came six years later, there was considerably less fuss, so that was a shame, you know. <laughs> but, um, what and so what was your I love this uh this description of this early on how it was always now we know that this is obviously rose-colored glasses but the description of it is always having being bright and beautiful out uh you are in the British Isles so we know, yes. we know that <laughs> it was Aberdeen so you know you don't get many yes. sunny days here it's exactly the same here. It's we have like a two months of some sun, and so. But did you? How was your relationship with the world around you, with the wild, with the wood, with the thicket, nature? I think, to be honest, uh, and this is probably disappointing for someone who claims to be a magician, but I was always a very urban kind of kid. I loved the neighborhood. Um, it was quite. I was quite close to the centre of town. So we rarely went to the country, you know. Um, we used to go out for drives on a Sunday afternoon and, and instead of going to some beautiful forest or place of natural beauty, my granddad, who was quite eccentric in many ways, as all the Wilsons, used to just park by the side of the road somewhere, whip out a picnic table. So I always felt more comfortable in the city than I did in the country. Um, and it's only in recent years that I've really um, expanded into nature. Uh, you know, because my granddad was quite well known in the neighbourhood, he had a baker that was just at the top of the road. That, that was what he did. He, he had a, a few baker shops and my mum worked in it. So there was a real little, it was like a village in in those days, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, you know, it just so changed now. You know, there was the the, the, the greengrocer with his, his pencil behind his ear and Mr Black and his apron and it was really like something out of the 1940s sort of um, second world war movies it's very quaint what so back here in your in the early days what would you attribute okay so what kind of pop culture and this is just young it's not to be the earliest stuff but what kind of pop culture were you absorbing and as we know you became the person that you are now, which is you're, you're very astute on 
some really obscure musical movements that happened and all this, you know, I, I always admire that. I feel like I'm in par with you. Uh, so what was the, what was the music, cartoons, TV programs? What was the pop culture you were enjoying early on? The very first uh, program that I actually became kind of obsessed with, and you know, there's a stage in childhood where you're not quite sure if the, the things are real or not, like banana splits. Does anyone remember them? Yes. So I just, uh, I used to, they used to be on on Saturday mornings and I absolutely adored them. You know, they had that kind of rock, <laughs> rock band kind of thing going on and they were just that fantastic trippy kind of um, vibe to them. And then, funnily enough, when I'm remembering now, all my memories seem to be in that, um, more than my parents' house, my grandparents' house. I remember watching it there, although I I don't think I actually did watch it there. It's just how your memory kind of frames things. And also my granddad had a a huge, I've actually written a blog post about this, he had a huge wooden radiogram, very old-fashioned. It was actually bought in 1969. And what he did was he just... um, phone Bruce Miller's, um, got them to send them their best radiogram and just said, give me the top 50 albums. So it's like a musical snapshot of that tiny little period in 1969. And I found a Rolling Stones record called Through the Past Darkly, which was in the hexagonal sleeve mono recording. I wish I had it now. It'd probably be worth, not greatly, but you know, 50 quid or something. And that's when I fell in love with the idea of being a teenager and rock music, and you can just hear the, the the dulcimer. You know, it was Brian Jones's. The, just after he died, they released it as a kind of tribute to him, and that began a, a lifelong obsession with uh, Brian Jones because he was just uh, such a fascinating character. And when I heard that music, I thought, wow, the, just the exotic, trippy sixties. You could smell the cannabis smoke in the acid. And at a very early age, like I must have been nine or 10, I thought, wow, I so want to be a teenager and do that. And I did. Yes. Which which <laughs> of the uh, banana split shorts that were embedded in that show was your favorite? I'm guessing it was Arabian Nights. Yes, absolutely. Arabian <laughs> Nights. I loved, uh, yeah. Size of an elephant. Gulliver's Travels yeah. and uh, Gulliver's Travels, yeah. There was one more, I can't remember what it was, but yeah. Oh, Jerry links some of that stuff up for people, it's so genius. Yeah, I used to go about saying size of a donkey and stuff all the time. <laughs> size of an elephant, I'm sure, it really annoyed <laughs> my parents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. When and so back here in the early early days what was your experience with dreaming i had some um hideous nightmares um when i was a child um i don't know if that was due to the kind of psychic stress of uh my dad's drinking my mum would occasionally join in and that's very unsettling you know when you've got i I think that's why i always think of my grandparents as a place of safety because my you know, most Scots people have alcoholism all over the place in their family lines. So my grandfather was um, the middle son of about eight children, dirt poor. His his father worked in the Rootsville Quarry, a very rough job. Sometimes he would come home 
with some money. Sometimes he would spend it all in the pub on a Friday night. So my granddad hated drinking. So I could always find refuge from the craziness that was going on with my mum and dad. So uh, one of the dreams was, um, I think this also relates to my, I was extremely good, extremely good, very good at reading and English and art as a child. I really struggled with numbers. So one of these horrifying dreams was I'd be on a, a board, like a, a game square, like snakes and ladders almost. And there'd be this uh, witch dressed in rags, uh, very, you know, just your um, archetypal witch. And she'd be screaming out numbers and I'd be on this board, came completely confused as to what I was supposed to do. And that's, I've never forgotten that dream. The other one was I'd be in some kind of undefined space and I'd have a tiny little, like, ball bearing in one hand, which was incredibly heavy. And I'd have a huge ball in the other hand, which was incredibly light. And it used to throw me into a kind of um, vertigo type feeling, a really kind of sick feeling. And I'd wake up terrified. And another one was, the last one was... Um, these kind of ape men creatures. Again, I was on like graph paper and they were rolling boulders uh, down a hill at me. And I would have these dreams again and again uh, for many years. Well, not many years, but a couple at least. Weird, Did you, back in this period, were you uh, watching shows like Planet of the Apes? And oh yeah, absolutely. Um, all that good stuff, the yeah, giants. I love and, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. yeah. I was obsessed with um, the weird and the sci-fi, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, that actually, I'd never even made that connection, but that could have been uh, something there. It's immediately what I thought about with that last, and I love, I love all of this, but you, you know, you are of that generation with that Pluto affliction there. So, what about with Land the, of the, the Lost? Which one, Jared? Land of the Lost. Yes, I love that. Usually falls I don't into think that. I've seen that one. As an American. Zeroth, Stevie, Land of the Lost. Oh, so good. I bet you have, and you're just not familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, was it black and white? No. No, color. No. So, if you saw it, I think you would be familiar with it. You're just not remembering the name. It was this guy and his two kids got caught in a whirlpool and were sent back in time to the land of dinosaurs. Oh, wow. Oh, Land of the Lost, yeah. I yeah. Think I yes. Yeah. 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 I used to love dinosaurs and I used to love um, those um, really badly animated, um, you know, Dinosaur films, and, um, yes. Sinbad, Adventures of Sinbad, and the Skeletons. You know, anything. Yes, I love all I that. Oh my God, Jason and the Argonauts, and yeah, the Harry yeah. House and stuff. Anything that had special effects in it and was kind of fantasy. Um, you know, I loved it. And because my dad was a sailor, he called our our golden Labrador Sinbad. Um, so that was another little <laughs> link. <laughs> really great days for. Um, all of that kind of sci-fi and otherworldly stuff. Did you, so back here, so you had these, these nightmares with, with that territory, a lot of times we encounter sleep paralysis. So did young Stevie encounter uh, sleep paralysis at all? No, never. I had a friend at, um, this is in secondary school and he was the first person I'd ever heard that had experienced this thing. 
he would say uh, it feels like there's somebody sitting on the chest. You know, it's the the hag. He didn't exactly describe it as a hag. I think he possibly didn't want to. Um, you know, but I'm sure that's what was happening to him. And he, he, it really freaked him out. But I'd never even heard of sleep paralysis. No, it was just very vivid, re repeating dreams. And I, I, I would realize in the dream, oh no, it's, I'm going into this dream again. Um, and try and wake myself up. And so also while we're back here in the past, did you have those, did you have childhood fears, you know, something in the woods, something under the bed, you know, those kinds of things? Uh, you know, um, not that I can remember. I, uh, not, nothing like supernatural fears, I don't think. I, I, I was never very afraid as a child of anything really. Um, my mum had a terrible fear of snakes, which is quite Freudian. And I remember one time my uh, granddad taking me to the, well, we call that a zoo in Aberdeen, but it's really like two donkeys and a, a tortoise and a gift shop. And I bought a rubber snake from the gift shop thinking it would be fun. And I held it up at the window and she burst into tears and I felt dreadful. But uh, no, I didn't, I really didn't. Very bad um, laddie. Then I think, yeah, no, it's bad, it's naughty. I felt terribly guilty when she cried. Your poor mom. <laughs> <laughs> so do that again. And then also with that, I kind of wanted to. Were you, were you much of a rule breaker rebel early on? When when does that kind of come yeah. in? I was actually, according to my mom, an absolute amazingly good not only a baby but like um at primary school i was very conscientious quite a worrier actually um i think again because of my family situation being a bit chaotic i, I felt um just anxious all the time so when i got to around about puberty um around about primary seven i consciously made the decision just not to stop worrying i really I almost remember making that decision. And then from there on, I just um, got really um, kind of out of control. Not in a, a nasty way. I never hurt anyone or got in fights, but I just wouldn't pay attention at school, refused to do any homework, just did pretty much what I wanted. And because my dad was at sea a lot of the time, he was the, the discipline man of the family. I pretty much got to do what I wanted, you know. By the time I was 10, 11, 12, I mean, I had a... a first line of speed I think 11 at the youth club disco and that's when the the slowed um I wouldn't even say it was a decline at first you know it was a again a kind of it felt wonderful to to be feeling all grown up and all my friends were a good few years older than I was and you know they were uh, doing slightly unhealthy things and I was kind of joining in but I, I really didn't feel any um I didn't feel like it was bad. It just felt so fun. And I wanted to be, you know, at discos, listening to music. I grew up very fast. This is something I talked about with Keats. We both feel like we grew up a bit too fast. Yeah, I was doing all that stuff between 10 and 12 too. I had my first acid hit. I think I was 11 or 12. Smoking um, cigarettes as well. I did. I never smoked cigarettes, but I certainly did everything else. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> and was out there. I had a fake ID and was just carrying on, having a damn good time, I might add. Uh, and everyone, of course, is of age or a little bit younger. No one was my age, and as you know. And so it puts it puts one in a position of a juxtaposed position of generations. There's like a bridging there. So you're one with these people that come from basically another generation before you that are at the time yeah. hip, you know, like you want to be their wild and crazy yeah, and, then, and then yours. <laughs> so yeah, which are in yeah. school. And mostly. it made me a lot more popular with the kids my age. So, you know, um, I had lots of girlfriends and stuff because I smoked and I, I, I knew this <laughs> guy and that boy. guy and used to go all nighters. I was a bad boy. Did you have a cool Fonzie <laughs> jacket too? Uh, yeah, you know what? I absolutely did. I went through a Grease phase. Uh, I saw the <laughs> film course. Grease like 21 times one summer. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I was, I was, how old? I was born in 69. So uh, you were nine. How old? Nine? Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Well, train spotting days. here. And <laughs> I could I could get a proper leather jacket. So I got this kind of uh, 50s sort of um, vinyl thing and I stuck a tiny little grease patch on the back. It was like my <laughs> T-Birds jacket. Uh, horribly embarrassing when I think about it. And then not long after that, I, I, I saw the, this, the News of the World front page, Sid is dead. And I saw a picture of Sid Vicious. Um, yes. And, you know, his hair and his padlock and I was like who is that guy so I instantly became obsessed with punk rock and uh, bought a pair of tartan bondage trousers when I was like 10 and um, used to hang around this shop called Slaughter which was like the, the only punk clothing shop in Aberdeen and I became a little mascot for the shop <laughs> oh man <laughs> I love these stories. So, all right, so winding back and staying back in this early period. So pre, pre the psychedelics and the speed and all that good stuff, give us an idea, if there is a change here, was there a, was the dream landscape, the architecture of the dream, uh, what was that like? And if it did change post getting you know your hands on psychedelics and speed and all that stuff and having a, a now a whole different life what were the changes there was a, a dramatic shift in focus uh, the nightmares faded really quickly you know they just seemed to be um when i was kind of struggling to cope uh, at primary school for a couple of years i really started to find my feet um started to feel quite confident in myself. So the next kind of phase of dreaming was I dreamt about this girl um, who had never, you know, I'd, I'd have these romantic layers, and it, not necessarily sexual things. It was just like, you know, I'd meet this girl in a dream. Couldn't quite see her face. I'd, I'd wake up in the morning feeling all like, oh, that was amazing. I, I totally really chased this girl through my dreams for like, Oh, 10 years um, so that was the next phase that I remember is this constant longing for like a, a soulmate uh, in female form that's you know and that's and as you probably know that's just classic and too bad you didn't have wet dreams I mean I live for those still they're my favorite and uh, <laughs> I, I love a hot sexy dream and especially if it goes to fruition 
I mean, it's the good things in life, baby. So this I dream think girl. I gave my wet dreams a chance because I was uh, <laughs> emptying them <laughs> oh, too quick for you, them to build Really, up. at that age? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Oh, my. Uh, that, that's that hot Scottish blood. So, anyway, or oh, yes. Yeah. And so the dream girl, 10 years, describe, which is the anima, of course, but describe describe her to us if you can if you recall well this is the thing i i could never remember really what she looked like i did meet uh, i fell heavily in love in first year when i went to uh, we call it secondary school you'd call it high school there's this uh, beautiful i thought when, when she first walked into class um because i'd been at two of the schools we moved around a lot because one of my dad's tactics to raise money was to to sell a big house and move into a slightly smaller house live on the money for a while because by this time he was a captain in the merchant navy captains are allowed to drink in their cabins so he was starting to lose one job after the other at this point and as his finances were going my grandfather would have to bail him out so the whole family was going down 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 you know from a quite a nice middle class um, suburban sort of lifestyle over selling houses and things were getting desperate so i actually went to two of the schools in the that catchment area so i knew a lot of the kids already but i didn't know this girl and when she first walked into the classroom i was just oh, she had jet black hair piercing green eyes and i just thought wow she i actually remember me thinking she just looks like a little doll you know and uh, so we got together and she was pretty much my my on and off girlfriend from First year, age 11 or 12, till I was like 21. I mean, there was loads of times where we split up and saw other people and we pretty much were quite, um, you know, we weren't very faithful to each other, but um, she was a constant thread. So I began to think it was her, you know, and, it, and we kind of, and our parents um, didn't particularly approve of me or they did at first, but this jealous girl had gone and said, oh, you know, he drinks and he smokes and he, he you know, he does this and he does that. So after being really close with our family, I was banned. And then that, that Romeo and Juliet thing started to happen where it was like forbidden love. So she would sneak around to see me and would have, um, you know, rendezvous, secret rendezvous and stuff. So I kind of identified her as the dream girl. And there was one, um, I'm just going with these memories here, but there was one time I'd, I'd gone out, I hadn't seen her for a little while got really drunk and we were staying in this grotty house in a council estate at this point and it was just so it kind of was a, a fruition of this dream so I'd come in gone to bed and she had come round to my house let herself in and just got into bed with me so when I woke up in the morning there she was and it was like wow it's like she did materialize out of a dream you know that really meant a lot to me then wonderful thing to happen did, at any point did she enter so that the real girl that was uh now playing part of that projective idea of your inner animus that had haunted you really uh did she ever enter in your dreams and become a did she ever fill that role within your dreamscape yes i think she did yeah i got quite obsessed um when we were separated for periods you know i would really be pining after her. so i think that that's very perceptive i've never even thought of it like that but she did actually step into that role of this but there was still some 
other quality that that uh, very rightly you call the animus, that special magical quality. Sometimes I'd dream it was like a celebrity and I'd wake up and think, oh, wow, I was with, you know, I can't believe I was with, and then, oh, yeah, shit, it was a dream. So there was a, a, a you know, she was a mortal woman. She never live up to that um, magical idea of this um, phantom a, a, woman. A great anima, yeah. It, so yeah. so at, at this time too, what did the dreamscape look like for you? What Was it... Uh, color black and white were you able yeah. to smell sensate color, stuff no 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 uh, i don't even know if i dream i still really don't yeah i guess i do dream in language now but when i look back on the dreams they're extremely visual and um yeah it's, it's actually hard to remember now what exactly my dreamscape was like I think my my daily life got so <laughs> weird and disjointed that um, my my waking hours became kind of more extraordinary than my dream life in a way, you know, because by this time I was smoking a lot of weed and really going deeper into the, you know, I discovered John, Jim Morrison and the Doors and um, really exploring that kind of dark psychic territory. You know, I'd stay in the room for days uh, I think I'd left school by this time, never any intention of getting a job, um, just drinking, smoking dope, playing music. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's actually, you know, I, I've actually, and I think with all the, the harmful drugs that I've done since, and this is a, a, a salutary tale, I've, I've lost so much of my life. You know, there's like huge chunks of it I just simply can't remember yeah you know and that that happens it's also one of those things we ponder here as well because the past is is you really can't hold on to it there are with evidence that it existed through video and photos and you know art and and, and architecture and all this stuff but it's also it's quite uh elusive when we think about the idea of memories and living, especially when yeah. we're talking about one's own memories, what's real. And then when we start overlapping dreams versus memories, these boundaries are very thin. And then you layer yeah. in drugs. <laughs> yeah. Lots of drugs. And then we have a psychedelic experience going on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I have heard that when we remember things, we aren't actually remembering the real event. We are, we're recreating it in our minds each time. Yes, absolutely. This is how, how we do. Well, this is, I mean, this is one of those dynamics that happens even when we encounter something in the now and we don't quite understand it and the brain pieces it together with all the data it has uh, to understand it. So you know, like I, I had had a, a, a Sasquatch experience and my brain wanted to tell me it was a bear. You know, so my logical yeah. side had to say, wait, wait, let's analyze this. And so, uh, you know, this is even furthered. Uh, we get more depth even with this dynamic, with this neuro dynamic when we go back to the past. 
it's another thing I find fascinating when people get hypnotized, whatever, whatever that really is. So in the dreamscape, were you at all the younger Sarah? So this, this is just, let's part your life into two right now. So, you know, 25 and under, uh, did you experience anything that you would consider lucid dreaming or from there up lucid dreaming to full-on astral projection? Unfortunately, not. And this is something that I've always kind of, um, you know, with being so interested in magic and the occult, I just, you know, so many um, other occultists have had these experiences where, um, they've seen, you know, spirits from an early age or, or had um, psychic experiences. My granny was uh, very psychic and my girlfriend currently, um, she's very psychic as well. She's got red hair and everything. But I just, I have never had a, a, what I would call, well, no, when I started doing magic, I have had paranormal experiences, but until I was in, deliberately inducing it, I had to work very hard. I think I've always been quite a, at heart, a, a kind of um, rational, sensible kind of kid, and I think I absolutely put a filter, filtered any of that stuff out, just through. Um, I was brought up. Uh, my dad was a convinced atheist, and we just didn't entertain any ideas of supernatural. None of my friends were really into supernatural stuff, so it just never, um, it never happened for me. Sadly. I have had some lucid dream stuff more recently, but I've, I've kind of worked at that, you know. Everything psychic or paranormal that's ever happened to me has been something that I've, uh, well, no, actually not quite sought, but that, you know, I've been having Reiki when I had an extremely strange vision, which we can only get to later. Yeah, we'll on, get to that I, in the modern I don't think I'm stuff. naturally clairvoyant, yeah. I don't think I'm naturally clairvoyant, unfortunately. It makes things a whole lot easier if I was. Yes. <laughs> I want, you said something that I'm interested in. So uh, give us a little snapshot of your granny that was psychic. Tell us about her. Well, well I mean, she just would always um, know these funny little things. It wasn't so much, um, we didn't really talk about it much. Like I say, we were a very strange family. You know, we had a, a great talent for not talking about anything important or meaningful. Like my dad could like get drunk, smash up the whole house, punch the neighbor. And then the next morning, nobody would talk about it. Um, you know, I could get like taken home by the police, drunk at parties and stuff, which happened more than once. Nobody would talk about it in the morning. So, but as my granny was getting older, she took to her bed like 10 years uh, when she was about 80. She just decided that she wasn't going to, you know, oh, oh, I can't, my legs are sore. I'm convinced there was nothing actually wrong with her. My mum had to kind of uh, fetch and carry for her. But she started having these, um, there is a name for it, but she would uh, say, uh, oh, I saw a great show last night. There was like a, a wedding and so they were all wearing like old-fashioned clothes. It didn't seem like she knew really what was going on. I wouldn't say she was a wise woman. But, um, and she was saying, oh, there was a funny man sitting by my bed last night. He had huge, bulgy eyes. And it sounded quite horrific to me. And I just thought, well, you know, the veil's getting thin there. Um, but she lived till she was 91. But um, 
she had, I think she, yeah, she was from Huntley, which is a very rural place outside Aberdeen. Um, her father was a horse breeder. So I think they were much more in touch with like the legends of fairies. And yeah, the folkish stuff. Weird mm. Scottish folklore, yeah. yeah. Which is really juicy. It's very juicy stuff. What were, so in your, in your house, the, were you raised with a religion? No, absolutely not. Um, my dad, like I say, was an atheist. My granddad was an atheist. Uh, my mum's dad was also a, a, a there's a guy called Willie Hamilton, a kind of anti-monarchist communist dude who he quite admired. So religion was not, not, not a thing. My dad's dad had been a Freemason, but I never really knew him. Um, they both, his parents died when I was really young. I did find his like framed um, Freemason scrolls and all that kind of stuff. I would have loved to know him and, and you know talk to him about that kind of stuff. Um, so no, my, no religion. Um, my mum was a kind of sentimental kind of Christian. Occasionally, she would uh, watch songs of praise and uh, have a little tear in her eye after a couple of glasses of wine. But uh, no, it was in Aberdeen is a very, very secular city. I think I read somewhere that it's got the lowest church attendance in the whole of the UK. It's a godless place, is Aberdeen. So I love no Aberdeen. Yeah. And, and we have such amazing people there that we all know. There's like a group of you there that are just like some of my favorite people. Weirdos, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderful. Yeah, the godless city. <laughs> yes. um, I had a friend, uh, a Russian artist uh, woman, came to visit once, and um, all the nightclub, all the sorry, all the churches or many of them on the main streets have been turned into nightclubs, and she was appalled and couldn't believe it uh, that would would uh, turned these beautiful church buildings into places of drinking and revelry. Uh, but yeah, that's how we do it in Aberdeen. So when you were, so, okay, so now, and, and, you know, this is how our Nox Mente stuff kind of unravels and unfolds with the dream is, the dream life is, is the template, but depending on the person, I like to weave in and out of their, their narrative that I'm aware of. So and how that affects and impacts the dream life, which then affects and impacts the life that people know about them. So, you know, our community, you know, knows you and you, you've put up a lot of raw video talking about your struggles with certain things and your triumphs with others. Uh, tell us about how you first started getting connected into, and you have done this on your channel, but for people that may not know, into magical workings and and then relate it to possibly the dream world and your experience and the dream world, we can overlap that here, Sarah, and the dream world could be your active mm -hmm. imagination world, the world in which is between the veils. And we get that with doing yeah. magical work as some people may not realize that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always um, loved to, I've always loved, you know, at school, my creative writing was like, off the charts 
it was very it went down very well with all my English teachers. I've read at a very early age, so I'd uh, you know I got a lot a lot from books. Um, how I got into my it was bizarrely I found a, a book called Magic and Occult Primer by David Conway in the school library, and it had fantastic like, book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Surprising. I, I ordered it many years later, and of course I. I had it for a couple of years as a as a, a child and lost it or lent it to somebody and never got it back. And I'd kind of built it into this fantastic thing. Then when I got another copy, I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's good, but not as good as I remember. No, but it, I stumbled um, upon so it I the same that. way. It, absolutely the same way. I was like, yeah. whoa, who is this David Conway? And then looking back, but it was it was a gem to find at the time. When there was, was not and much in, in out there, days, Sarah. You know, that was, no, absolutely not. Especially not in a small town like Aberdeen. You just could not, you know, you didn't meet people that were into the occult. There were no occult bookshops. There were no new age shops. There was nothing. So this book really, um, it, it just, it was fate that it fell into my hands. And that was the first time I'd ever read about the astral plane. And I somehow conflated the, the astral plane with a kind of, still childish kind of notion of this other universe you know like narnia or uh, i loved this film when i was much younger i think it's called jamie in the toll booth where this kid has a, a cartoon dog i used to love the mixture of real um you know real film and then you'd have an animated character the mixing of the worlds like that so i always fantasized about excuse me finding a, a an entrance like a secret entrance there's a lane I lived in a beautiful part of town, you know, it was, it was urban, but we had a huge park called the Dorothy Park, which figures quite large, largely in my story, because we used to spend so much time there and we used to do mushrooms there. Uh, there was a lane and it was all um, just like you'd expect a lane to another world. Um, and it had a big door all covered in sort of ivy and grown over. And uh, if I could have got through that door, I was convinced that it would lead me to some kind of Narnia or something. Because I think, any kid that's got living with an alcoholic and feels kind of trapped and can't wait to get, grow up and get out of there, the idea of opening a door and going to these magical adventures. Um, so that's that's where books came in. That's where the idea of magic and the astral plane. I guess it was as a, a place to escape to, you know. Yes, absolutely. And it's it goes, it should be said, today, everything is available everywhere. On the internet, there's just too many books on these subjects. Back in the day, there were very few books to be had. And, and so we were able to get the juicy spiritualist stuff that did bring, you know, Madame Blavatsky and the Crowley stuff. But there were still very few alternate sources. There was, of course, Sybil Leak and, um, you know, uh, my good friend Safaras and Saunders and all that. But it was still really slim pickings. And, yeah. uh, and the stuff that was starting to come out was so light. It was, you know, wicker light. Yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> it was. So Although I did find... I did yes. find a, a copy of Al Alistair Crowley's. I wish I had it now. It was a hardback. It had a orange, um, no, sorry, purple um, fly cover. And it was in bargain books for like incredibly cheap, beautiful paper, beautiful edition. But of course, at that age, I could 
not understand one word, but I kind of got it in a way. But I thought, well, I'm not clairvoyant, so you know, I can't possibly do this. But um, it it fascinated me, and um, it would serve me well later on. Well, maybe just well, that's more that. serendipity. That was around about the same time, you know. Yeah, that's more serendipity to have that fall into your hands, though. And I mean, I'm one of those people that thinks we're there are people just born to it. And oh yeah, I do think that. Yeah, you're, you're either attracted to it, and you're attracted to it because you're supposed to do it, or you're just not. And it just never figures in your life at all. Yeah, and and there are lots of scholars in in the occult and the occult sciences that are just not practicers. You, you know, they they they're not practice. There's no praxis there, and that's fine. They're not, you know, but those of us that just come with the ways we come with the ways and then the sources find us but we were naturally there already how was your first experience with doing ritual when you decided to lay it out sorry about my dogs um it wasn't i mean because i was pursuing a path of you know i was we're getting into my later teens now it was always in the background you know, and I also had a, a slightly before this, one of the few things my dad and I would do together was watch like um, the Hammer Horror Double Bills. Oh, all up night. to Hammer. Oh, God. Yes. Yeah, I love Hammer. <laughs> so the there was, you know, you'd, you'd have the trendy sort of 60s Satanist popping about to the devil, a daughter, the devil rides out, you know, Diana Sweetly. So that gave me an idea of what occultism was like. But I still didn't think it was kind of realistic for me to do it. I did kind of experiment in my bedroom, but not really. In a, I was very scatterbrained, and I was more into art and poetry, you know, painting, drawing, music, girls. And it just seemed I just don't really have the time to stay in, in, my, stay in my bedroom and, and study and, and work magic. So it really wasn't until... I'd kind of been through my first phase of addiction. Well, that's not quite true. I did practice some of the Crowley Star Sapphire and stuff in my bedroom with some success. You know, I felt like I was getting somewhere, but, you know, demons didn't appear in the puff of smoke and um, start giving me, like, um, magical objects and stuff. So I really didn't uh, take magic seriously until... As, as recently as sort of 2000 is when I first started doing rituals properly, you know. Um, it was with um, an ex-girlfriend by that time. We've got a book, uh, Isis Magic by Isadora Forrest, I think it was. And then that's when it yes, really yeah. kicked off in, in earnest. <laughs> so and the results came so quickly, um, you know, within a few months of... Uh, starting the rituals, I was full on channeling entities, getting pages and pages and pages and pages of stuff, which she would kind of, I would kind of scry and just go in a, a kind of trance. And I'm not quite sure how I managed it. And then various voices would speak through me. She would all write it down by hand while I was speaking it. Um, then I had a bizarre out-of-body experience while I was getting Reiki. And nobody, you know, that Reiki is not supposed to do that as far as I know. But I was I was sitting on the chair and the next minute um, I'm kind of shaking. There's tears rolling down my eyes and I'm looking at 
Earth from way up in space. And I had a, a voice, and I really wouldn't have expected it to say this because of my interest in Crowley and kind of more traditional magic y magic with a K. That it was like, we are the Pleiadians, we are the Pleiadians, this is the Earth. And it gave me this ecological, I have told this story before, of course, but um, it gave me an ecological message. But my first response was not to say, okay, I must go out and save the planet. It was like, oh, that seemed kind of almost in a way false, although it was probably the most real psychic experience I've ever had. You know, there's no drugs involved and no mushrooms. It was a spontaneous out-of-body experience. The earth looked absolutely beautiful. It looked like that famous picture of the blue marble. It had a, like a halo of light around it. Uh, it was when I look back on it now, I was like, why did I not take that more seriously? And you know, like continue. You know, that was a major lead. And some people would die for that sort of experience. But at the time, I was still one foot in that world and one foot in, into, you know, selling drugs on the streets. So that's, you know, the two worlds don't go together very well. I find it interesting that this was the Pleiadians. What did you know about the Pleiadians at the time? I mean, this is, it just seems, and it's way before I think a lot of that stuff became so popularized as it is now. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't really know anything about the Pleiadians. Um, I think I, I'd heard them in connection with some New Agey. You know, there were some New Agey books that I was kind of aware of, although I wasn't interested in it. But I was almost disappointed that it wasn't Horus or, um, you know, something more traditionally magic-y. I was like, A little more why, grit. Why Six of one. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think Pleiadians is just an upgrade from the Egyptians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, why the Pleiadians and why this ecological message, you know, um, I'm not really interested in mythology. I was deeply selfish and um, hedonistic. And, you know, it was like, well, if you're looking for someone to save the planet, you pick the wrong guy. But I almost got the feeling it was like a, a kind of something false about it. Something didn't ring true. Uh, like, I wondered, are the CIA putting out, like, weird frequencies? <laughs> I was maybe slightly conspiracy minded in these days. It's, but yeah, but it's a uh, it's a likely it's likely that it's something like that. I mean, it could be an AI for all we know. It could be. Yeah, I mean, it did seem just something inauthentic about it. But I've always had these twin impulses. Uh, you know, one part of me wants to move towards something, and the other half saying no, pull away. And I think that's caused a lot of tension in my life. It's only lately I've started to integrate um, all these. Um, competing strains and tensions so when I was getting the channelings I, I was into it at the time that I began to even get suspicious of them and think okay am I just is this just bullshit coming out of my own and I'm, I'm open-minded about it I don't think that there was some august angelic beings necessarily speaking through me but I was definitely tapping into some deep source of fantastic material you know it was very beautiful poetic made a lot of sense the stuff and my friend still uh, lives by the not lives by them but she she certainly had never doubted the authenticity of them whereas i was like oh this is getting a bit much you know and because there, there became an expectation that i could just do it you know at the drop of a hat i began to kind of pull away and again i got back into my wild ways 
So it was a false start in many ways, and it's only recently where I seem to um, get really into something and then the call of the wild and I'll drift back into, uh, although I haven't, you know, I've been clean for a good while now and I don't see any possibility of me going back. That, that used to be the, the thing I'd, I'd, I'd feel like I was advancing spiritually and then I'd just suddenly, oh, fuck it, I'm going back to my, my old friends and hanging about, you know. So I've only recently put that in perspective because I'd written it off as pure fantasy. It was all, you know, I was very much into the psychological method of magic. And it's only like so recently, I mean, like maybe a month ago, that I did a, a specific working to contact a specific entity in a dream. Didn't actually sleep that night for some reason. And I believe that I did. And then all of a sudden I started my Golden Dawn grade work again, uh, practicus. And since then, I'm, I'm on a real roll. But, like, if you'd done this interview two months ago, I would have probably told you, I'm sick of magic. It's, it's not working. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the money I spend on books. And I'm going to walk away. Uh, you know, it was, it was almost like that. Although I knew I would really walk away. But sometimes you get, it's frustrating the amount of work I have to put in for slow gradual rewards you know the golden dawn system is not the glamorous evocating spirits and you know um it's quite dull and workmanlike but uh, i have been doing evocations i have finally accepted that there is a, a vibrant and living spirit world um you know the, the the evidence is just so heavily against the psychological model now and Although like, I've never actually seen a spirit, I've had my channeling experiences, I've had some visionary experiences, but I've never felt like when I invoke one, it's there. You know, I've never felt that presence. So that's the next phase of my work is I really want to connect and see what everyone else is talking about because with the renaissance of interest in, in grimoires, you know, you've got Stephen Skinner and uh, people like Jake Stratton Kent and um, all those guys, there's really been a rebirth and interest in the, the old uh, magic. Yeah, there is definitely a renaissance. It's, I don't know if it was Keats and I talking about this. It's certainly something we would talk about. But I do think that the cult of psychology has done a lot of damage. You know, it might have been, I don't know, it's one of our friends. The cult of psychology, and I am of this school. I came up through Jungian praxis and all, all this and, and I'm certainly you know gone through analysis and uh, I'm not I'm not putting it down in any way but it has certainly taken taken a lot of magic out of magic and That's exactly it, what I was going to say yeah it, it and it scrubs it all down and especially when we start hearing the real life stories of people like Freud and Jung behind the veil because all that all the personal stuff has been locked down for so long that we start to see how messy and sloppy they were and how deeply yeah. occulted they were and um and of course it's to the you know the cult the cults that have come around them and especially in psychoanalysis are a gas you know they're just they've created you know whole generations of careers 
based on just the dry stuff and um now all the stories are yeah. really coming forward how how much occult stuff was there how much uh sloppiness in developing these these theories and uh all of it it's just it's juicy and i'm so glad we're able to finally start seeing this and that the the cult of psychology is is being balanced back down now because everyone's wanted to rest their laurels on it and i have i've fought all along even being a union so i'm interested in backing up here and would you give us an idea of the mechanism in which you were channeling so like what what are the p's and q's of that when because it's okay. the channeling things always me and excited me at the same time so it's so oh i've lost your audio there she she prematurely muted did i actually did you hear me with the question uh, no not really. no i didn't <laughs> oh dear um with the mechanisms of channeling so it's it's a, such a provocative subject and uh it's you know, I mean, when we think about it, all the tomes are, are including the Bible and all this stuff's channeled information. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a whole debate there. I don't plan on ever getting in with anyone that wants to come at me. Keep it to yourself. Uh, but what was the mechanism of channeling that you engaged yourself in and found yourself doing that brought forth this information? What are the okay. nuts and bolts of well, it? Well, I never set out. I never set out to channel. That's the very first thing I have to say. Um, we were doing rituals. Um, the two of us, um, my female friend and I, we were doing the ISIS magic. We'd uh, become votaries of ISIS. Um, we'd tied our tets, and we were doing everything by that textbook. So we would um, do a ritual purification and consecration with incense and. Um, Isis water, which is just basically salt water with some rose petals and stuff in it. Um, we would do, it's basically like a golden dawn pentagram ritual, but it's Isisified, if you like. And then we would meditate. And in one of these meditation um, sessions, I just felt like there was something trying to come through me and talk. It, it, I thought it would be a, a kind of one-off weird event. I, I didn't even know whether I should e even say anything. You know, I thought, well, maybe this is just for me. And it, it became so strong, I just had to say, I think I'm, I'm going to have to say it. And it's a bit weird because, you know, coming from that psychological model, you don't think it's a spirit talking to you. You think, okay, there's something coming up from my uh, subconscious here. And um, it just came unbidden. And... Uh, um, Every pretty much every time we did that same set of um, ritual actions, it would have the same result. And of course, you, it, it builds. So each conversation is kind of picking up where the last one came off. There's different entities coming in and out. Um, we've got some absolutely good information, but we also, as you always do, we've got some utter uh, wrong nonsense information. But we'd also been experimenting. Not, I've never channeled. I never do any magic when I'm on like high dose psilocybin. I do the rituals before and after, and that's just its, its own experience. But I think 
the psilocybin experiences around about that time had definitely opened the door. I mean, the, the first psilocybin experiences that I, I ever had, um, the first proper, you know, because sometimes you don't know the right ones, but the first one I ever had was I had a complete, I saw the magical world, you know, I felt the energy of trees, I, I, you know, so it, it confuses me why I didn't see that as, yes, this is confirmation of the world is full of spirits and energies and, uh, you know, that is still was stuck in this kind of materialist, logical, scientific, nothing can be supernatural. Of course, spirits don't need to be supernatural, you know, that it's just unexplained science, really. So, yeah, if you get me, I've gone kind of forward and back on that one a little bit. Um, it's not easy for me to explain or describe. Well, I, I respect this about you going backwards and forwards on it because it, you know, there's a lot of stigma attached to it. And I do the same thing still. I have knee-jerk reactions when I watch some channelers. And oh, yeah. I, I'm just like, this is bollocks. This is complete yeah. other, Some of it is, other you know, some gibberish of it and, is yeah. just clearly um, people kind of fool themselves or trying to fool other <laughs> yeah. people. And I think that's why I was attracted to CW Chanter because I'd just come out of that period and I became kind of disillusioned with it. I think that was also to do with, you know, interpersonal stuff to do with my working partner. And then in blue, CW Chandler saying it's all bullshit. And I was like, yeah, you know yeah. what? It is. But just recently, you were have also I been drying able to... out at that time, too. Yeah. You were just yeah, recently absolutely. drying out. Yeah. Um, so I think I got a little bit scared of it. And I didn't want it to be demanded of me anymore. I wanted the, the person that was writing it. I was like, well, if I can do it, you know, could you try? I didn't want the responsibility and the pressure of having to kind of perform. So I, I walked away from it for a good while and uh, just I kept on doing the Golden Dawn stuff, but I really wasn't interested in the, the frills and the, the, I didn't want spirits to come in and, and start um talking through me I just wanted to find what I thought was like a true magic path because that had almost happened by accident and I wanted to be in control and I had these kind of false ideas about what magic is because magic is just what happens while you're doing certain things you know it's not like it has to be like Crowley did it or it has to be like the Gardy did it or any other of these guys you know it's a very individual thing everybody's got their own it's like music you know and uh, no two artists are the same. Wait, so let's let's weave this into into the dream narrative. So with so this now we can look at you here and now and um and s through the scope of your life now. And so give us an idea of how and I know recently you've really been trying to work you're doing that kind of work now. So what does the dreamscape, what is the dreamscape like for you now, especially since you're working on lucidity and all this stuff? What, how do you experience it as a, as a, as a realm, as a, a place that's not this place? I have to say that I've got a major impediment going on with my dreaming because, um, because of being a heroin addict for so long, you know, it's like extremely physical, 
body, but you know, there's no denying um, you're not, it's a physical reality. It's like you're hungry or you're thirsty. So still my body has not recovered. I'm still on a, a two milligrams of Suboxone. Um, that keeps my body kind of half in withdrawal, like 50% of the time. So my in my dreams, my body is still trying to score. So, so much of my time in dreams is spent with random kind of druggy kind of situations, trying to score. Uh, you know, you can never get high in a dream. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of this is, is still bogged down with that. And if I'd known that this um, lockdown was going to happen and it had been so long, I swear I would have just said, right, I tried to do it. Uh, when was it? It was three years ago I tried to come off and it was just so hideous that I ended up kind of giving up three weeks. And that's funnily enough when I started watching CW Chanter and getting involved with the kind of online community, if you, if you like, because I was so isolated. Um, and it, it, you know, coming into chat and saying hello to people, it was it was um, contact that I really badly needed. So I have had some success with lucidity because um, I found out if you give yourself like twenty minutes um, of sleep and then like w deliberately wake yourself up every twenty minutes, you start to gain control. You know, you you start to realize that you are in a dream, but it's still not completely successful because I keep getting dragged back into this kind of Barusian land of the dead. I don't know if you've read his theories on dreams, um, but he talks about this place where he calls it the land of the dead, um, where you can't get anything to eat. It's all these kind of lost souls wandering about. And I, I, unfortunately, I spend a lot of my dream time in there. So I'm hoping to break out of there soon. With your with your magical praxis where it is currently, because I think anyone that has is your friend has been following you on your channel. You know you've been all over the board in the last few years, and uh, it's been interesting to watch. I mean, you had your brief skit with uh, Christianity with yeah. Robert, and um, yep. you, I love this about you. Stevie, I absolutely just adore how open you are to the world around you and how willing you are. I mean, you dive into something and give it your all. And I think this says a huge amount uh, about your personality and your curiosity and that you're not a closed in bitter person whatsoever. You're still, it's clear that you still find mystery yeah. in the world. So, oh gosh, and that you're assert, you're seeking, you're seeking. When should we stop seeking? I, I mean, I feel like we should never stop seeking. No. So, what, what kind of praxis are you in right now that seems to be working? Now, I personally have enjoyed how you take the holy sacrament, which is the sacred mushroom, and. Um, <laughs> 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 and and then let that inform you uh as to like through the etheric magical ride that is that is that and then you come back 
from these journeys and process. You do the process work. Uh, and yeah. unfortunately, a lot, you've done that in public for us to all go along with you on that journey, which has just been remarkable over the years. Uh, so what kind of work are you doing magically currently? And how has everything that's come before it filled this into where you are? Are things being, are you successful currently with your magical workings? I am. Um, not all the time, you know, it's, it's never an exact science. I, uh, uh, you know, the, after the ISIS magic, I moved on to uh, just a, a self-initiated Golden Dawn magic, uh, manual, Kabbalah magic by Liam Thomas Christopher. I wasn't particularly attracted to Kabbalistic magic. It was just one of the paths. And it almost, you know, I would have probably temperamentally gone for something more like Thelema or something, but it just so happened that this book fell off a shelf uh, when my friend was in Treadwells in London, she brought the book back, and I thought, mm, this is a pretty solid base, you know. Um, most modern magic um, comes from the Golden Dawn, you know. Crowley just kind of added his own little touches here and there, and I thought, this is going to be a good, firm base. It is not fireworks, you know. It's it's hard daily work, meditations, visualizations, pentagram rituals, hexagram rituals, invoking the elements, you know, so that's the solid stuff. The more exciting stuff I'm doing at the moment is working from the Arbital of Magic, which is um, the Olympic spirits. So I've only done two evocations, but I would say the first one wasn't too successful because I wasn't, I hadn't done the preparatory work properly. Second one, far more successful. I'm also working with um, a Goetia, a very interesting approach to Goetia called Goetia Pathworking, where it's it's all done uh, in your imagination and it's very simple to do, very effective, I've found. But um, I I'd find it hard to stick to, you know, almost the first page of that Golden Dawn manually says, read about any other practices you want, but if you really want to succeed with this magic, don't do any other rituals or practices and of course I disregarded that from day one I can't help myself from dipping into things and that's why I call myself a dilettante because I do jump about from practice to practice just experimenting if it works I'll keep doing it if it doesn't I'll kind of lay it aside uh, because I was so hung up on the psychological model the old grimoires really didn't make much sense but in the last two um I don't know if you've seen them. I've been quite pleased with them, actually. The last two um, shows I've done, I've been talking about how I've kind of mashed my modern magic ideas from Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary in with the grimoires, trying to find out what these spirits, angels and demons are, how they relate to the psychedelic experience, what exactly is the astral plane. You know, I'm a bit of an overthinker. I can't just accept, okay, go to this magical place we don't really know what it is or what they are i like to know and that's why i'm not doing it to get rich or to uh, get a better job or uh, you know happily i've found love so i don't i don't need to look for that anymore i'm not really so much into results magic a sigil will do that quite easily i really want to know and it's all about knowledge for me so 
mixture of Golden Down and Golden Down, Golden Down. <laughs> that's a good name for it, actually. Golden Down, Golden Dawn, but with uh, evocations, and I'm, I'm slowly putting together like um, tools because in traditional magic, tools are very important, consecrations are very important. But I, I still don't, you know, I certainly don't subscribe to the Christian worldview anymore. I came up with something. The night that I did that sigil, I couldn't sleep. It was to summon a specific entity. The next day, like a flash of inspiration, I've always had, you know, I've always been fascinated with William Burroughs and stuff and uh, his um, paraphrasing of uh, Hassan Isabaz, nothing is true, everything is permitted. And I'd always been, you know, oh, which model is actually right? Which one is, is the right? And then I thought, hold on, man, aren't you listening? If nothing is true, everything is permitted, then all stories are equally false. You know, the Bible isn't true. The book of the law isn't factually true. They're all just fictions. So that makes me free to pick my own fiction. And in Robert Anton Wilson's style, I might as well pick the most interesting, um, warm, funny reality tunnel I can. So I have now kind of mixed chaos magic with traditional magic and said, okay, I am totally going to believe in spirits and I'm going to make that work. I love that. Would you, would you give us an idea of what you consider the astral plane to be? And if, is it separate from the etheric field? Uh, yeah, that, I think that that's, a, that's a very stands. difficult one. <laughs> that's a difficult one. I recently read an excellent book, uh, Psychedelic Shamanism by Jim DeCorner, and I came by that one through Magic, uh, Secrets of the Magical Grimoires by Aaron Leach, another excellent book. So, you know, that place that you go uh, on, not necessarily high doses, I just prefer high doses because it just never fails to instantly zap you into that other place. A lot of magicians will say, well, the spirit world's around you all the time. And, um, you know, you just have to kind of be able to see, shift your focus. And that's true to a certain extent, you know. When you take uh, psilocybin, your, your physical location doesn't change, but how you perceive it does. But I think, you know, I always think in terms of higher dimensions and stuff, I, I tend to get a bit over-intellectual sometimes, I think, but I think the astral plane is a, a place inside. It's literally a higher dimension inside us like if you think of dimensions as one being perpendicular to the next then any dimensions higher than the three of, of space and one of time kind of have to be inside and so it's all around us but it's also inside us at the same time and i think this paradox of inside and outside is very important in the psychedelic experience because paradoxes seem to resolve in that, that space, you know, the, the language that ties us into this reality loses importance, you know, language, English language, to me, when I'm on psilocybin and, and magically altered states, seems so incapable of describing what reality actually is. So, uh, have I answered the question? I don't think so. I just, I never come up with answers, only more interesting questions, I think. Well, you, you gave us an outline. What, what, I don't, I feel like I don't have an idea what 
your idea of the etheric field is? Uh, uh, the etheric field is like, um, is that like the, I mean, everybody has such different terminology in occultism, which can be uh, a problem as well. The astral plane is where entities, everything from the mantid beings that I've seen to the lion people that I've also seen to the more classical sort of ideas of angels and demons exist in this other realm. You know, it's not obvious to us in our everyday consciousness. You know, like a, it's like a shaman um, thing, you know, like the, the yes. Puska dudes. I think they would say that these... Uh, there's usually three worlds. It's like the middle world of normal consciousness. Then you've got an upper world of like good spirits, angels, and God, and you know perhaps pagan gods and all that. And then you've got an infernal or chthonic world where are the more uh, sort of dangerous. Some people call them evil. I don't believe they're uh, necessarily all evil. You know, like the goetic demons and stuff. And you've also got your land of the dead there too. But really, it's all around us all the time. It's just being able to to tune into those different frequencies. I think it's like tuning a radio into a specific station. It's all demons, if you ask me. It's all demons. Everything is demons. That's, that's the folly of it all. What? So, <laughs> what? How? If you could quantify it in a way, is it in terms of? how we experience what we consider the reality plane this uh which you know i guess i find myself in in the the rebel group with what i think this is but that's another day in another place how real Uh, is how real what you think it is (laughs) how real do you Uh think those the astral and etheric planes are especially as a magician and uh one that has also had a good amount and i think this is to your credit when we're talking about altered states of consciousness of experience with substances that move you out of the reality that everyone holds on to and puts a gravity towards yeah well I think they are, I mean, at the time when you're in them, they feel realer than this does. You know, there is a a, a truth and a clarity and um, meaning becomes so much more apparent than our sometimes weird and disjointed lives. So you could say that they, that is an ultimate reality. It's like a mystical idea of reality, a higher reality, if you want. It, it obviously exists, coexists. Um, uh, I've forgotten the question now. I was getting carried away. Well, the idea of, and you actually just added to, you've brought more into this question because you, you said when you're in them, in these etheric or uh, astral uh, magical spaces between between time right between time and space that that get created that one could also postulate is is where the dream state is as well uh that that it feels very real and we were tying in the psychedelic experience however i just wanted to add to that 
when we're in this space right now, which is the apparent reality, where we ascribe all these rules, and there are rules in all these realities, believe it or not, people that do not oh, yeah. experience them. There are rules in a psychedelic experience when you're in it. They may seem far oh, yeah, out, strict rules. <laughs> but there are rules. Um, <laughs> and so what you said was really provocative to me in that uh, it feels real when you're there. Well, this feels real here too. And so that is something I would like to bring forward for people to understand is the idea of what is real and how reality feels, how palpable it is. And so if you could just expand upon that. So being yeah. like taking well, us well, back to the psychedelic experience and the idea of other other realities, other states of consciousness. Yeah. Well, what I think is happening when you take psychedelics, not only psychedelics, you know, you can reach it through the, the traditional methods of fasting, meditation, ritual magic, but I, I always, and I think this is sometimes a lack in me, that I, I kind of need that psychedelic experience to get me to those extreme places. I mean, how often does a, a, a ritual magician meditating, well, maybe they do, you know, but just see all these, actually see them physically there, like a, a mantid being, uh, which I'll never forget, uh, humanoid beings with lion heads. So what I think is that these beings are all around us all the time, but we're uh, by necessity to eat, sleep, have sex, go to work, for whatever reason we have to do those things on this plane, if we were seeing the things that are actually there all the time, we would be so distracted, we wouldn't be able to do anything. So it's like, you know, the doors of perception, when, when the doors of perception are cleansed, man will see things as they are infinite. So the ritual magic, the fasting, the drumming, the dancing, all these shamanic techniques, but I always think, add in a few psychedelics as well, and it always work better. You're removing those filters and you're seeing more of reality instead of this you know it's like wearing blinkers so you can only see what you really need to see to survive it's all really nicely explained in the Leary he came up with it Robert Anton Wilson kind of tinkered with it a bit the eight circuits uh, circuit model of consciousness where the first four are like all adult humans have them um, you know the bio survival the socio-sexual, the time-binding, symbol-using circuit. Uh, the fourth is, I can't even remember what the fourth is, and then as you get five, six, seven, and eight, that's when you start to open up into these um, expanded states of consciousness, which Lily believed was preparing us for space travel. A lot of different uh, theories about it. They reckon that like, transcendental meditation will get you to, to these higher circuits. Psychedelics definitely do ritual magic techniques definitely do so it's 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 there it's always there it's always all around us but we're just very rarely aware of it because we need to survive as human primates yeah that's what i'm saying this idea of reality that we get into and pure materialists i i just often wonder I mean, we know scientifically, if people need that, that we're very limited in sensate information that comes in and, uh, and that there's more, there's more going on around us. And 
So this oh, yeah. is always the issue for me with materialists that say this is the end all be all end of case, you know, shut the book, no more talking. So and that I frustrates mean, the very me. That, yeah, I mean the world is made up of swirling atoms and neutrons, which we can't see, but we're we're pretty sure that that's how it is, you know. I know people balk at the idea of applying ideas of quantum science, which nobody really understands unless you're a quantum physicist yourself. But I do think that they have some application to understanding reality, altered states of consciousness. You know, um, again, I come back to paradoxes because I think there's, I haven't quite unpicked that yet, but I think there's a lot of power in the idea of these kind of impossible things being resolved somehow. It's hard to talk about these things, you know, it's notoriously hard. Yeah, Just oh to yeah, it's the language. Yeah. It's still I was thinking about this today, how difficult it is to really accurately uh describe these other experiences, especially in the times we're in, where language is breaking down and there where you know it's like we're through the hooking glass of time and uh everything is in verse bad means good and you know sick means yeah. fantastic and <laughs> yeah. you, you know like there's That's strange phenomena isn't it how we're reversing language yes it's it's interesting it's very wonderland in that sense I'm also wondering now, I want to traverse the idea of stepping into the artistic muse and that state of consciousness where we find ourselves swimming in pure creative energy. And how does that, because you are an artist and you're a very wonderful artist at that, uh, how does, how do those moments when you really truly feel embedded or imbued or blanketed or possessed or inspired by magical sparkly muse energy to create something and uh is that a different state of consciousness for you do you get downloads do you just go at it what's the process in arting for you and how does that tie into all of this otherness this is where it absolutely all came from, I think. I got such a, a, a hit off of a, a need to be creative from a very young age. After that, uh, I hate to keep talking about psychedelics. It's not all about psychedelics, but it just all seemed to it just cause such an explosion in my brain. And um, not long after that, very potent first one in the Duthie Park when I was talking to trees and you know that the air was full of alive things. I got very interested in visual art. I saw Van Gogh or Van Gogh as you Americans call him and the colours and the wavy lines and I thought geez that guy was tripping all the time. Uh, obviously I think he I think schizophrenia is very close to an uncontrolled um, un, you know these people sadly don't want to be in this state of mind all the time so I immediately made the connection between altered states of consciousness and creativity and chased that I wasn't I wasn't interested in magic for magic's sake you know it wasn't like a, uh, I didn't want to be a kind of 
find God or anything like that. I wanted to be better at art and to be able to express myself better, to make better music, to make better paintings. Like what I took from Crowley was um, that he had found a system to kind of induce genius. And I wanted to pursue anything that would make me, you know, it's like the classic story of selling your soul to the devil <laughs> to make you a good uh, violin player or, or a, a brilliant artist. I'm also fascinated by Picasso. I love painting. It's my favourite medium, really, although I'm really enjoying music at the moment as well. But it's so fleeting, you know, you can, you can have those moments of inspiration and then it'll just, the muse will desert you for weeks, months sometimes, and you won't be able to pick up a pen. Writing is another passion of mine, you know, poetry and um, I attempt prose sometimes. I actually wrote pretty much a third of a novel about, um, it was quite uh, fan fiction-y in a way. It didn't start out like that. I thought, right, I'm going to use Crowley as a fictional character. I'd heard that if you put a swastika on a book cover, uh, this is how hungry I was for fame and success and money. Um, I thought, okay, I need Nazis in there somewhere. Ah, that thing about Rudolf Hess and how Crowley was supposed to have worked with Ian Fleming to in, uh, put a spell on Rudolf Hess to get him to fly over to Britain on that uh, weird mission he did. I'm not sure if you know about that, but um, I started to write a novel on that. It was going really well. And then but I was still in my addiction phase at that time, and I got so desperate one day, I swapped the laptop without backing it up, without really caring. Um, for a tiny little bit of you-know-what, and I lost the whole novel. I've still got, like, a couple of fragments on my blog. But, uh... Oh, yeah, that I've is... That says... There, but, I know, but what... what that says all, doesn't it, really? Yes. Um, oh, indeed. I'm actually... There's nothing <laughs> to say, because that says it all. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> there's, that's how that shit works, man. It is. I kind well, of sold my soul to it for a while. <laughs> yes. Well, we we make contracts constantly when we don't realize it, and that's yeah. that's part of the trickery in in life in general. And then when we start working with magic, and then when we start diving into all this other stuff, we don't realize how often we're actually making contracts. So every time you scored, yeah. you were making a contract with that substance. Yeah, and it you know when it first presents itself, I mean, we really came from like a club scene where the the dance, uh, you know, the the summer of love and all that MDMA had, had kind of made it okay to take harder drugs. Where me and my friends, although we were quite wild, we would take um, mushrooms, smoke weed, drink, but that opened the door to all the other drugs, and when it first came you know we'd smoke on the tinfoil like a beautiful angel had come into my life there was no worry everything was comfortable it was like living in a dream and then when it's got you it suddenly shows its its evil side it's like something out of a horror film it's like you know it comes on like an angel and then you find out that it's actually a demon that is sucking your soul the fang is a needle the fang is a needle <laughs> yes i've often thought of um you know, like, a, it's a metaphor for vampirism as well. There's a lot of sharp things, piercing uh, flesh and veins and blood, and you, you're all white and you kind of stumble about in, in this twilight all the time. 
uh, I often wonder if, um, you know, there were that decadent kind of, um, although they weren't, well, no, Bram Stoker, there would have been intravenous use by then, but I've always thought there was a, a metaphor, vampirism is a, a metaphor for addiction in some weird way. But like all my ideas, it's it's not very well thought out. Well, it's, well, it's, it's absolutely a metaphor yeah. because vamp- vampires are addicted to blood. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's and, thought uh, out. It's out there in the world. It's uh, one of the things I was curious about here is is the idea of how so when you're doing all this, you're dancing not only with the devil, you're dancing with death, and um, you yes. know metaphorically with the devil, metaphorically with death, but actually it can be literally with death. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, a, a few of my friends did actually die, and I almost did once. Can you give us the story of your experience of almost dying? This is very strange. Um, it, uh, I had been—I don't know how I managed because I was clean for about two weeks. It was round about. I mean, I did my degree when I was pretty much, um, you know, still pretty hardcore user but it was around about the time I'd left and for some miracle I managed to be completely clean for about two weeks and I had this very perverse urge because I knew I was clean and I would get one hell of a hit to go out and score and a friend of mine um, you know helped me to get it and we both kind of knew that I was going to OD that day we were kind of almost talking about it a bit like an as if that thinking back I knew that that was going to happen that day and kind of so did he and I get the feeling that he kind of wanted the vicarious thrill of watching it happen and it did happen and I was thinking about this today because I I thought this subject would probably come up and uh, it was very profound I mean you've got to remember that opiates do make you feel like you're kind of not saying to anyone to try them for god's sake don't they're absolutely the most destructive substance in the world but they do make you feel extremely euphoric and um, like you've died and gone to heaven but this time i did so literally cliche story i did the thing um i saw blackness just gathering at the edges of my vision i presumably passed out I saw this, it was literally like my body was rising up into this bright, bright light, but it was clouds, as cliched as that sounds. And then just this gorgeous feeling in my body of just kind of being free of everything. And it was the most euphoric feeling I've ever had in my whole life on planet Earth. And then I woke up with a a paramedic, um, like two, one on each side and one like staring down into me they'd given me that um, shot that they give people on the tracks alone or whatever and I came round and that was that but uh, that's the only time that's ever happened you know I had quite a high tolerance for most of the time so I really wasn't pretending that it would be collapsing and you know gouging out all the time but that time that certainly happened but it's weird how we talked about it, the possibility of it and I still went ahead and did it and I don't know some things I can't really explain why I did them. 
So where, so here where you are now, what what are your ideas? And so I'd like to tie this into the dreamscape as well. And and I and I know you've already given us an idea of you know you're chasing the dragon in your dreams often, and which is common for people in recovery and, and a constant you know a, a thing it's a thing. Uh, but what what are your ideas around death and? where do you stand with that now? So I, I really, I just don't care where you came from with it. I'm interested in it, in your ideas of it now. What, what is it? What, where do we go? What do you think about it? Is it, you know, where are you with it? Well, I have to say, I don't really fear it at all. I feel like the experiences I've had in my life have not only prepared me, but um, I think there is definitely some kind of existence um, after that the body dies. I've got no basis for this. I do feel like some of my, again, um, profound and heavy psychedelic experiences have been like dying. You know, there's the confusion of, I've described it before as being suddenly dropped in a really deep murky ocean and you have to negotiate these kind of demonic um, lower world chthonic entities uh, like I've read in like the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead you know you've got to know the passwords also Burroughs Western Lands was pretty influential in my thinking about that I don't think it's an easy passage you don't float up to heaven suddenly and start playing a harp you know long enough to look at how ancient cultures who were much more in touch with the other world than we were are you know you need you need um currency you need to know your shit you need to kind of know what to expect you need to kind of prepare for death you know like the tibetan chod rites and all that so i think the the journey after death is perilous and i think not all souls make i've, I've read some fun fantastic stuff in that psychedelic shamanism book about this idea of these higher entities you could call them archons although i don't believe in that very dark world view that everything is totally uh, run by archons but there are these spiritual entities that feed off our belief and our prayers i think that's what a lot of the the totally uh, fundamental hardcore joyless religions are about you know Jehovah and the Old Testament wanted burnt offerings, energy, energy to keep him alive, you know. I think we're predated on, like we predate on plants and, and animals, you know, they're just the lower kingdoms. Our, you know, there's a pecking order. That's another idea that's very strong in Solomonic traditional magic is this idea of hierarchies of spiritual beings. But I think not all of them are nice and some of them will gobble our souls up. Uh, as food so we have to learn to avoid that by either making some kind of deal with them being useful to them you know we are not the top of the food chain uh, by a long uh, shot when it comes to um, spiritual creatures so i don't know if that's an answer but that's uh, about as yeah oh yeah get. definitely and i love that you bring in the solomonic stuff which i you know all this all these subjects are 
are subjects I these are waters I swim in as well as a seeker and I have always found the Solomonic stuff quite provocative in in revealing that we are on a chain and it, it I know yeah. I encounter this this idea of hubris around all the time we all do here where so many humans really buy into their ideas of dominion and that they're just utterly at the top and if you one dive into solomonic stuff which is very old uh and 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 when you start talking jinn and all this other stuff from over in the middle east uh we are not (laughs) on the top of the chain from it (laughs) And so maybe somewhere in the middle. I, I believe we do have some, you know, there's a story of like um how God created you know, these are metaphors and stories and nothing is true, everything is permitted, but um we do have some kind of authority. We're not just animals, but there are definitely a few ranks above us, that's for sure. Well, we're cunning and and that's we're definitely not on the bottom either but it it's it's still it's still a lot for some people that are very indoctrinated into the idea that we're the top both here in this reality and in the afterlife so i appreciate you bringing that in and i i i just encourage people to if nothing else look into some of these other ideas of of alternate realities that are ancient and alternate realities that have been a long time in the works longer than than some of the stuff that people are buying into now so you know for example christianity uh and and everyone knows i'm open to christianity i i love it too the it's a, the bible's a very juicy tome so when you have in your life of dreaming stevie have you encountered the dead have you encountered others that are not you and part of your own psyche i not in dreams but um one day uh i've never talked about this before it's kind of i've kind of wanted to possibly bring it up but then i've i've shied away from it a bit but uh, one day when I was at a real low point in my life and I was drinking heavily, I was also using this, that and the other thing and I'd been kind of cooped up in my flat for days. I was I was extremely depressed and um, I had this experience where I sensed two um, presences, let's say that, uh, two female presences, right? And um, I started to kind of communicate. I mean, I was... I think it was more alcohol, but I think maybe the the, the aftermath of other stuff. But it, I got the story that they were um, trapped spirits. Um, and I wrote it off as like, oh, you were just kind of fantasizing and tripping. But now I'm starting, you know, with the new sort of realizations that are coming in, I'm thinking, well, they, they could have very well been genuinely dead souls who had... Um, um, committed suicide it's like it's, it's, i shy away from it because it's so kind of morbid and creepy but um and it was two women and i absolutely it felt like i was sitting with two 
normal human women, except I knew they were dead because they were telling me they were. They weren't quite as uh, tangible and solid as, as we were, but it was an absolutely real experience to me. They gave me the kind of life stories. One of them told me a very sad story. So that happened. So not in my dream life, I, I, like I say, um, my dream life is a bit disappointing, to be honest. I, I worried about coming on the show because I thought, well, shit, not much happens in my dreams, to be honest. It's in my waking life that the interesting stuff happens. But yeah, there was that. So, uh, yeah. And and that it, thank you for sharing that, by the way. Have it, I, I've never told that story. I, I was a little bit thrilled when you said that because you, you're very candid on your station and uh, it's, you know, I, it gave me a little bit of the sparklies when you said that because you, you are very candid and this is one of the thing I, things that I think draws a lot of people to you is how raw and real you are and uh, we need more of that, of course. Uh, so also with this, where we are, I want to just kind of wrap. And so I haven't been looking at the chat, although I, I, I have it open on the side so I can see that it's there, but I, I just can't focus on both things. And uh, I wonder where you are with the idea of and this is the woo and I have to I have to wrap this in and anyone that knows me knows this where are you with the idea of what are what is this otherness that is possibly in the in the world and and there's a million ways we can wrap it it's AI it's it's ETs from Pleiades it's you know inner earth reptiles that are intelligence what whatever ghosts all this other other than us stuff, aside from what we have brought forth today in this chat? It, you know, this, it could be all of the above. It could be one thing. I mean, if we are so close to the, the, the spirit world as we undoubtedly are, that we're, there's bound to be a bleed through, you know? I'm not sure. I mean, I also have this weird feeling that kind of past, present, and future have already happened somehow. So AI has always been here. Um, you know, there's also the fact that we could be living in a simulation that is seriously considered by some um, pretty advanced scientists. To give you a simple answer, I knew it's there, but I couldn't tell you what it is. Um, Reptilians, they're such a strong archetypal, you know, I've seen um, giant snake talking things. Um, Those are the Nagas. Riddled with, um, the snakes yeah, are the Nagas, was, right? This was like a huge, yeah, yeah. This was a huge uh, female kind of teaching serpent who chided me about, uh, I had a, you know, when you go through that silly stage of magic where you want to start calling yourself Fratar something or other. I picked uh, Fratar Sanctus Kaluber, which means holy snake. And oh, that's uh, so pompous. the holy snake wasn't too happy about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. God. So uh, she wasn't happy about that. Um, so yeah, I, it's, I honestly think now 
after coming out of this materialist straitjacket that I was in, I'm open to any ideas that I couldn't say. I can I know they're there. I don't know what they are. That's the thing. And this is part of why the world is still very mysterious to me, is that I really feel that there's so much there that we don't know. And I think a lot of people understand that there's more here. And I don't know, and I and I definitely understand uh, why we need to stay pragmatic about things and reasonable about things to get on in life. But it it is an important idea to not do what so many parents do to their children, where we get indoctrinated into no, that's not real. The, the realist, the materialist yeah. mindset is very restrictive. And I think it's doing no one any favors. What a sad world it is when we break it down in that kind of Bajas way. It's it's very yeah. uh, dystopian. Where are we with it? Exactly. I mean, look at the dreadful state of the world at the moment. Ecological mm -hmm. meltdown, political <laughs> leaders who are leading us to the precipice of destruction. If people could <laughs> embrace the idea that we're not the fucking cock of the walk, we might be able to start putting this. And now, you know what? I'm starting to think that the Pleiadians were right about that ecological message yes. and I just wasn't ready to hear it. <laughs> I know. But now maybe I, I need to pick up my swords. Stevie, I'm and, so uh, with you. Because know, you. we are in a desperate state. We, yeah, are we are indeed. Fucked up, man. I, I think no matter what, out, to use a bit of profanity. Yes, I'm sorry to talk over you there. Yeah, no matter what, we couldn't That's have okay. a year ago thought, you know, we would be in this these kind of circumstances where we were locked in, locked down, you know, with the, the boot at our face. And so there's a silver lining in that. In that, if you're conscious you're starting to question what the hell is going on so with Absolutely. that jared do we have so, questions uh, for our good sarah not that i've seen Sarah, I'm quite happy I'm to sure that, end it I'm, there. That was fantastic. <laughs> Sarah, I'm sure that chat is filled with everyone you know and love because it, it's pretty much the same community. It is in the whole Scottish, the Scottish, yeah. uh, the Scottish right uh, is here. <laughs> we have, <laughs> we love, we have Scottish so, contingent you know. in the house. Contingent <laughs> yes, is here. Yeah. It's strange how many, how many Scots. Scots there are in this little community. I know. Very few English people you'll notice. Yeah, yes, it's a lot. And that's my favorite part of my mix is the, is the Scottish mix, the Bane in me. It just, it's always what I've uh, vibe with the most. Of course, it, I find it, I think it's actually the most magical in the end. Oswald this, wanted to say that you look <laughs> quite Pictish warrior in your picture. Your picture looks like a Pictish warrior. Well, it's certainly not you, Sarah. <laughs> no, that's sitting bull. Yeah, this is this is a Pictish, a Native American, is named Sitting Bull, Sitting Bull, who was a great hero, by the way. I ha I still have um, a great hero of mine. That's why I've got his uh, picture. Yeah, up there. 
we cannot sell the earth and all that oh that's chief seattle there's so many sitting bull was one of the great heroes too yeah me too i've put him in a couple of my videos but i got i got a legit question okay cool so oswald wants to know if you agree with tom sheridan i got two questions now Mm. um in that scots and irish are the same culturally slash genetically I never agree with Thomas Sheridan, just on point, on, on principle. But yeah, I think so, definitely. Mm. Apart from the Irish aren't as intelligent as the Scots, obviously. Oh, <laughs> oh shit. Shots fired. <laughs> I'm staying out of this. flippant is. answer. I'm All right, and then uh, Philip Blair wants to know if you're working on any experiments at the moment. Yes, tell us what you have I'm in the works. I'm always working on many experiments. Which kind of feeds into the whole well, kind of thing like to plug. Say, yeah. Oh, oh, gosh. Can I just tell you, I've got some really uh, exciting guests coming on to my show. I mean, I don't really do a lot of guests, but I just seem to have tell harvested. Him. I had a high-energy day the other day, and people were just totally getting in touch. Tell it, so brother. I've got tell BJ it. Swain. Is anybody here? Uh, author of Living Spirits. Uh an OTO, um, he's a fantastic guy, very willing to, you know, teach and help younger, less experienced magicians on the path. I've got Dr. Al Cummins, who just released a book on Scarlet Imprint. Uh, it's a collection of manuscripts from 1567. The excellent book, The Art of Magic. Uh, it, he's fucking a genius. I just bought that book. I've got uh, Arundel Overman. Oh, yeah, I've got it as well. Beautiful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Arundel Overman's cool, the paperback. Mm-hmm. I've got, yeah, yeah, he's coming on. And I've also got a, a lady called Carol McCoy, a, a Scots compatriot of mine, expert in the face, practicing Scottish witch for 30 years, self-professed daughter of Pan. And, uh, of course, my magical experiments never cease. My consciousness experiments never cease. Uh, my musical experiments, poetry, writing, it all never, ever ceases. All you need is Stephen Skinner, like to make the trifecta there of uh, awesome yeah, authors. Yeah, I might give him a call. You know, <laughs> uh, he's been dying to get on the show for ages, but I really can't find time for the man. <laughs> I'm only joking. He's <laughs> like Saint Skinner of the magical I know, community. I know, I know. <laughs> it's like I mean, you don't mess with Skinner. <laughs> I, Skinner. I love this lineup. Uh, so that and yeah. so people may find you at on your YouTube channel, Sarah the Mage Experiment. Correct. Yes. Link in the description. Yes. Yes. And yes. and yes. your your blog is still up, isn't it? It's still up. It's you know it's so neglected. patchy. I really should. <laughs> it is neglected. I did put up a, a kind of new post, but it's all it's more of like a, a online notebook, really. Uh, again, I'm not great at finishing things, so I've got a lot of kind of half thought out stuff. But it's you know, I, I don't think that really things need resolution and pinning down all the time. I like the idea of kind of open, multiplicitous uh, stuff. It's just an excuse for being lazy and never finishing <laughs> things. But. And your and your Twitter handle is. Oh. Uh, Saroff two two two, isn't it? I don't know. It is. It is. It is. Jerry has all that stuff. I prefer Facebook nowadays. Yeah. Oh God, I I never go back to Facebook. Yeah, I'm going to close my Facebook account very soon. I'm so proud of you, Jerry. No, honestly, (laughs) for uh, 
there's some really good um, magic groups going on where there's a lot of knowledge going on there. For, for anyone who's interested in magic out there, maybe not so much for everybody else, but the, the magic heads will get something out of it if they join the right groups. Yeah, the groups were great. I, I do miss that. I just don't like Facebook as a whole. But that's another rant. Yeah. Thank you. you. This has been a great pleasure to finally have you here. Oh. And the timing was just right, as it always is. And thank you for I staying so. up yeah. late yeah. to be on the show. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm really... Uh, <laughs> You're <yeah>. tuckered. <laughs> Trying to get to bed, but it's been... I am. I probably won't sleep because I, I rarely do after shows. I get so excited. Well, thank you very much guys for having me um thank you, you know, and, uh, um, i'll come back on any old time great we'll have you, you back sir. on the obelisk sometime speaking yes. of which next week we have an obelisk on the full moon it's a special full moon too it's like the, the first eclipse yeah there's something weird about it. it's like the 12th yeah, there's was, a lot going on yeah yeah it's gonna be a wild week next week so be sure to but I want Jerry, I want to interject there. So next week's kind of like a, it's a, officially an obelisk and it's got uh, Michael Deacon from the Michael Deacon program. No, it does not. It does on my calendar and that's what we had agreed on. Mm -mm. Our, uh, Who does it have on yours? We have a Holly Seeliger next week. Mm -hmm. I'll have to look because I just this again with michael he keeps getting pushed back no, all right i'll let i'll let that be michael's on the 17th now. of june okay and that's he's... not what i'm seeing but this doesn't need to be in the front page so go on with it chair <laughs> where, where was i now that you've interrupted me damn it no. sorry no it's okay next week's an obelisk so be sure to tune in for that we will be back on our regular channel next week we're out of the penalty box tomorrow yay so, yeah. <laughs> I hate having to download this video and put it up on that channel. It's all a bunch of bullshit, but whatever. It's been it has been a learning <sighs> experience. Fucking YouTube. Okay. Anyway, everyone have a wonderful night. Good week. Remember to yeah. not wear a mask. Don't be a slave. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a mask. Right, <laughs> I'm staying out of the politics right now. But we'll thank talk you to you next week. Take care. Goodbye.